1: Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program, and on Wednesdays, we come together to encourage, support, and motivate each other in our meditation practice. Today, we're doing breathing mindfulness meditation. Next week, we'll be doing loving kindness meditation, and we rotate these every other week so that we can come together, encourage, support, and motivate each other in our practice and provide an opportunity for you to seek guidance on any questions that you might have related to meditation but also anything else along this path so since i'm not really covering a specific topic it gives us lots of space and time to be able to provide you an opportunity to ask any questions that you'd like about any aspect of this path whatsoever so if there's any challenges that you're having or anything that you're reading in the book that you need to get more clarification on or if there's anything that coming across in your life in terms of life situations and you're interested in understanding how to apply these teachings. Or maybe there's some thoughts that have come up since our Sunday talk. Since this week, we're in chapter 17 on eliminating fears. Are you really scared? There might have been something that came into mind or you might have started to apply some of those teachings and you need some clarification. So there's these Wednesdays to be able to meditate together and then also be able to seek guidance through asking any questions that you like. If this is your first time here, the way that you ask questions is you put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. We have moderators that will see those and be able to make sure your question gets asked during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today and just open up to any questions that you might have before we actually start meditation together.
2: Hello, teacher. If someone has the flu, so and they are not able to breathe from the nose, so is this a good chance to eliminate craving if there are craving to practice meditation repeatedly, or one can breathe from the mouth?
1: Both, actually. You can observe the mind and see if the mind is discontent because you want to meditate really badly. And if you're observing that, gosh, the mind is really attached and craving to meditate really badly and it's discontent just because of the fact that you can't meditate, then that's a good time to say, all right, I'm not going to meditate for three days or four days and just kind of train the mind that this meditation practice is impermanent. And then after three or four days, you clear back up, then you can go back to actually meditating. And then likewise, if you observe that you're frustrated or the mind becomes angry or frustrated or irritated because you can't breathe through the nose and the mind is discontent because of that, then in that situation, go ahead and meditate and meditate through the mouth and train the mind that you're not going to always be able to breathe through the nose. Breathing through the nose is impermanent. Therefore, training the mind to be peaceful and content in situations where it can't breathe through the nose, that's an opportunity for you to address that. So this is where mindfulness becomes very, very important, is having awareness of mind, being able to deeply understand the mind through reflection and looking inward. Why is the mind discontent, right? Because I taught those red light, that when you see discontentness, that's the red light on the dashboard of the car and you need to pull over, you need to pop the hood and you need to investigate what's the problem with this car. So the same thing is when you see discontentness, anger or irritation or frustration, okay, pull over. What is it? Is it the fact that I can't meditate at all and I'm craving meditation itself? Or is it that I can't meditate and breathe through the nose? So, whatever it is, then you train the mind to let go of that craving, either by not meditating or by meditating through the mouth, in order to train the mind that it's not going to always get what it wants. Because as long as you sit there in frustration and anger, the mind just holds on to that craving, and you've got to treat this mind like this third entity where you are the person who's training this mind. And now when you observe with mindfulness what it's craving, then oftentimes the best thing to do is kind of walk in the opposite direction. So if it's craving to meditate, then sometimes you have to stop meditating for two or three days or four days and train the mind that you're not always going to get meditation. Or if you observe that the mind is craving to breathe through the nose, okay, well, you're going to breathe through the mouth for the next few days, even if you're not sick, even if you miraculously get healed, you observe that craving in the mind, then create a situation where you have to breathe through the mouth. And this is where the mind is like this wild animal or like this little child throwing a temper tantrum. That's what discontentedness is like. It's like this little child throwing a temper tantrum and it's three years old. It's six years old. It's like, yeah, I want to breathe through the nose. Why can't I breathe through the nose? Or ah, I want to meditate. Why can't I meditate? It's like, all right, You know, that's what you want to do. Well, you're not getting that, right? Because what do you do if a kid's like, I want chocolate, daddy. Mommy, I want chocolate. Give me chocolate now. Give it to me right now. Well, if you give it the chocolate, what do you think they're going to do next time when you're in that same store? They're going to do exactly the same thing. Give me that chocolate. Give me that chocolate, right? So the way that you train the child not to keep complaining and yelling like this and having a temper tantrum is when they're like, give me the chocolate. Give me the chocolate. Nope, you're not getting the chocolate too bad right? Because they're not having good moral conduct. So giving them the chocolate would be rewarding that in that temper tantrum. So when your mind throws this temper tantrum with anger or sadness or frustration about any kind of cravings whatsoever, and you can observe what it is, then oftentimes you do just the opposite in order to train the mind that, hey, you're not getting that today. And you're going to need to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy even though you're not getting that today. That's part of your training. And this is where sometimes people are confused and they think that this path to enlightenment is all about meditation. It's just all about meditation. But it's not. There's this whole other part to it where you need to learn this path to enlightenment and observe with mindfulness, what is the mind really truly craving here? And how do I train the mind to let that go? And in some cases, it's doing exactly the opposite and not giving the mind what it wants.
2: Well, so isn't meditation beneficial? So craving for permanent meditation will get better results?
3: Mm,
1: Well, if there's any kind of craving whatsoever, even craving to meditation, the mind will not get to enlightenment. Because let's say like you come home or you're on your way home. Your plan is that... I would like to meditate, and you have this craving to meditate. There's this mental longing and strong eagerness. There's this yearning. The mind is pulling towards the objects of its affection. The person speeding through the streets, you know, walking really fast, driving really fast to hurry up and get home, because that craving is motivating this unskillful conduct. Well, this craving is unwholesome. Therefore, it's leading to unwholesome decisions, like speeding through the streets or Racing to get home or hurrying up and trying to get in the house so you can hurry up and meditate. What happens if you break your key off in the door and you can't get into the house? Or what happens if you go home and when you arrive, your husband or your wife or your child is sick and you have to take them to the hospital? You can't meditate. Well, now the mind's going to be upset because it was on the way home, it was craving to meditate, it hurried up and got home. You walked in, your plan was to meditate, and now maybe you need to cook dinner, or maybe there's a mess at home, or maybe someone needs to go to the hospital. And if there's this mental longing with strong eagerness, it's going to motivate unskillful conduct. So when you realize like you can't meditate, that's where the anger, the hostility, the resentment, the aggression is going to come through in our intention, speech, and actions. And now we're causing harm in our relationships that are just going to come back to us. So even a craving to meditate is going to produce unwholesome results. Even a craving to attain enlightenment. Once people hear about this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, sometimes there's a craving to get to enlightenment. You kind of have to sneak up on it where it doesn't even realize you're coming. And you don't long for it and yearn for it. You just consistently, gradually, with determination, with diligence, with dedication, you just kind of gradually progress the middle way, almost like you're sneaking up on it.
2: So on YouTube, we have a question from Tricia Dukins. She writes, is one of the goals of meditation to meditate longer and longer? And should longer meditation be something to aspire to?
1: This is a good question in relationship to what we were just saying. You guys' questions are always really good. So Tricia, that same craving that someone can have for meditation itself Someone can also have craving to keep expanding their meditation sessions for longer and longer periods. When we first start, we know that, okay, two to three sessions a day for 30 minutes or longer. That's kind of like the goal. And someone might build up to the point where they're at 30 minutes. But if someone has a craving, desire, attachment, and they're like, oh, I want 45, I want an hour, I want an hour and a half, I want two hours, right? And I mean, this thing can just keep on going. That's how craving is, that the mind doesn't experience pleasant feelings until it gets the objects of its affection and it keeps moving the goalpost. So what you should do is build up your meditation practice where you're getting to 30 minutes. That would be ideal. But don't feel like you have to get to an hour or two hours or three hours. I can probably count on two hands the number of times that I've meditated for an hour or more. And maybe 10 to 20 times in my entire life that I've meditated for that. And I didn't even plan to meditate that long. I just basically sat and meditated and I just happened to look afterwards and it was like an hour or hour and 15 minutes. But 99.9% of all meditation sessions that I do are right around that 30 minute mark. So don't allow there to be a craving to just keep going more and more and more and more and more because that's what craving does. That's what we do with cigarettes, with drugs, with sex, with gambling, with shopping, with all the different cravings. Money, if there's attachment to money, it's just want more, 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 more. And it takes more and more to be satisfied. It takes more and more to get to that pleasant feeling. So the tolerance is going up and up. So what you're doing is you're saying, no, 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 no. 30 minutes is just fine. I'll meditate for that long. And when I get to that, I'm completely fine with that. And if you'd like to go 40, 45, go for it, but don't feel like you have to just keep expanding it for longer and longer periods of time, because that can just be the mind craving and you're not interested in allowing it to do that.
2: I have a question. I just started your program, but I'm having a hard time understanding karma. I was sexually abused as a child, and I am trying to understand how it is my own karma to accept. Please help.
1: Sure. So welcome. Pleased that you're here. Wonderful that you're just starting and you found how to join these online classes. So let's talk about karma first, and then let's talk about how it relates to the experience that you had. So, Kama, or the natural law of Kama. Kama is just a word that essentially means the results of our decisions. There's this cause and effect, or this action and result, the results of our decisions. So, it's our life, it's our decisions, and it's our results of what we experience. So, that's what the natural law of Kama is. We use this word Kama because there isn't a one word translation in the English language. If there was, I would just use the English word, but there really isn't. So it's cause and effect, action, result, the results of our decisions. All decisions that we make lead to some result. And there's wholesome kama and there's unwholesome kama. Wholesome kama comes from wholesome decisions made through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom unwholesome gamma or unwholesome results when we make decisions through craving anger and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality this is the unwholesome results of our unwholesome decisions because our decisions were based in these pollutions or these unwholesome roots of craving anger and ignorance and What the buddhist teachings are and this path to enlightenment is is to gradually learn these natural laws so that you can start making more and more decisions through generosity loving kindness and wisdom because that's going to produce more and more wholesome results and at the same time that you're doing that you're diminishing this craving, anger, and ignorance in the mind so that you'll no longer make decisions through craving, anger, and ignorance. And you're gradually diminishing that. And as you do, you'll see discontent and gradually diminish. That's how you know you're on the right path. Now, in terms of what happens to us in our daily life, it is true that everything that we experience is a result of our decisions. The things that we experience as part of our childhood are oftentimes a result of things from our past lives when we say a result of it doesn't mean that gamma is a punishment oftentimes when people think about the natural law of gamma depending on what their previous background is is their mind can be conditioned to think that the natural law of gamma is a punishment and reward right and that's not what the natural law of gamma is it's just cause and effect Example is if you go outside and you go to a particular store and you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to the cashier or to the auto mechanic or what have you, they're going to take care of you in a better way if you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful versus if you walked in and you were impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful. You're not going to get the same level of treatment and service, not because you're being punished, But it's just a result of your decisions. The results of our decisions, when they're in generosity, loving kindness and wisdom, they're going to produce wholesome results. And when we base our decisions in craving, anger and ignorance, it's going to produce unwholesome results, just the results of our decisions. So all of us having been born into this human realm, it was because of an accumulation of our decisions in previous lives that has allowed us to obtain this human birth. And this human birth is ideal. It's the ideal place to attain enlightenment because we experience all three feelings, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So we have the motivation to progress and pursue this path to enlightenment. But while it's a really wonderful and ideal thing that we've attained this human birth, there is certain unwholesome decisions that we've made in the past that are going to affect us in this life. So what realm we're born into, whether it's hell, animal realm, afflicted spirits, human or heavenly realm, it's based on our decisions in our previous life. And the condition of our mind, once we arrive into a various existence, a certain existence, it's going to be based on our previous decisions and previous lives. And things like which family that we're part of. Is based on decisions that we've made in our previous life not as a punishment but just as a result of our decision this cause and effect so I don't know the situation hundred percent but let's just say that as a child I was sexually abused by an uncle or a father or a mother or somebody like this somebody close in the family this isn't punishment that we're experiencing as a result of something that we did in the past it's actually just a result of being reborn into a human life and being reborn into a family that is lacking wisdom because whenever there's craving anger and ignorance, it's going to produce unwholesome results it's going to produce unskillful behavior unskillful conduct. so if my mom or my dad or my uncle or someone else in my family has a craving for sexual pleasure with a child and that just happens to be the family that I was born into because they're lacking the wisdom of how to eliminate that craving, then this is a result of having been reborn in a family that's lacking wisdom. It's not as a punishment. It's just something that occurred as a result of the situation of being reborn into a certain family. So it's important to take that punishment part of it out and don't think of it as like you deserved to be sexually abused because nobody deserves to be sexually abused. Nobody at all. But the state of our society, the state of humanity with massive amounts of craving, anger, and ignorance, there's a lot of these unwholesome things happening like sexual abuse and other types of abuse too. And many of us have experienced that kind of thing growing up or at other points in our life. So now what you're focused on is as part of this training, is realize that what happened in the past is in the past, and now focus on letting that go and realizing while that experience happened to you, that's not who you are as a person. It doesn't define who you are, and you don't need to hold on to any resentment, hostility, or anger for the individuals that were involved in this situation. So you can let go of any resentment or anger. And that takes time a lot of times, especially if you're new to this path and realize that that's in the past. And there's gradual training that you'll need as part of this path to help you put that in the past. And as you put that more and more in the past and you realize that you didn't deserve this, It's you didn't cause it as a child. It's just a matter of the result of decisions of having been reborn into a family that was lacking wisdom. And now that it's in the past, And you're safe now now it's a matter of training the mind to let go of the pain associated with that let go of any resentment perhaps or any anger that might be there and train the mind to now get liberated and get freedom so it's no longer experiencing painful feelings based on things that happened in the past and that's part of this whole path it's not something that i would be able to share with you in just one conversation and then you'd be able to instantly let go of any pain that might be associated with something like that. Those things oftentimes take a lot of work, but it's great that you're on this path because this is exactly what you need in order to train the mind to let this go so that you never need to hurt ever again. Because oftentimes when we experience these traumatic experiences like abuse, we get kind of re-victimized over and over and over again. We keep experiencing the pain over and over and over again that we're inflicting it on ourself because of our mind is holding on to the memories and to the things from the past. So this path will help you to let this go so that you don't keep getting hurt over and over and over again by it. But that's just going to take a lot of work for you to progress, but it's possible. You're going to be able to let it go. It's just going to take time, effort, and energy, and you've got the support here to help you progress through this. So you're always welcome to reach out and talk privately if you like and i can help you and guide you a bit more with more specific details that way
2: on zoom kyla writes hello sir how do you deal with complacency in your meditation practice for example when you say to yourself i will do it later
1: yeah so complacency or a sluggish mind is part of what the buddha taught that the mind can either have this sluggishness or complacency or it can have this excitement, this elation. In either situation, the mind's not in the middle. It's not in the middle where it's residing peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in the enlightened mental state. So much like a musical instrument, if the string is too loose, i.e. complacent, it's not going to play beautiful music. The mind feels dull. It feels lethargic and lazy. But also, if the string was too tight, having craving, desire, attachment, too excited, then it's not going to play beautiful music either. So it's only when we tune that string or the mind to be right in the middle that it plays this beautiful music. But it takes a lot of work, again, to do that. But the Buddha gave us the solution to this in what's called the seven factors of enlightenment. So he talked about whenever the mind's complacent, that we should practice the enlightenment factors of investigation, of energy and joy you'll see this in chapter three of this book where i detail in there the seven factors of enlightenment which are tools whenever you observe the mind is complacent or sluggish you can move it to the middle by practicing three of those seven factors and whenever you notice the mind is excited or elated there's another three tranquility concentration, and equanimity that brings the mind to the middle. So when it's too excited, it brings it to the middle. And those are six of the seven factors. The number one factor as part of the seven factors of enlightenment is called mindfulness. And the Buddha says we should be practicing this all the time, that it's always useful to have awareness of mind. So if you have awareness of mind, which it sounds like you do because you know the mind's complacent, with that awareness of mind or that mindfulness, now that you see that it's complacent, you start practicing investigation, energy, and joy. And then oftentimes when you start doing that, the mind will swing to the other side and you'll start experiencing this excitement or this elation. And where you observe the mind doing that, then you practice the tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So while they're called the seven factors of enlightenment, and oftentimes people think that, okay, this is what determines if I'm enlightened, That's not what these are. They're actually tools that we can use in order to move the mind to the middle when it's complacent or when it's too excited. So I suggest that you look in volume one of this book, which you can download for free at buddhadailywisdom.com. You can go print it, or you can order a printed version from Amazon. And if you look in volume one, chapter three, you'll see the detailed description of the seven factors of enlightenment and how to use those as a tool in order to move the mind to the middle. And then whenever you observe that you would like to make the decision to meditate and the mind is like, I don't want to meditate. I just want to sit here and play on social media or I want to watch more TV or I want to talk to friends or whatever. What you do is you train the mind through the Eightfold Path That you have to apply right effort. Right effort is to eliminate the unwholesome qualities of mind and arise wholesome qualities. So you have to pull up the boots. You have to pull up the pants. You have to put on the belt. You have to do all the work that you have to apply this effort. You can't just sit there and keep playing social media if you're planning to awaken the mind through practicing meditation. To a certain degree, you just got to put on the boots and get up and go do it. That's what right effort is. And if you learn what that is, which is in chapter five of this same volume, then you can apply right effort in those situations and actively move the mind towards meditating. And then, as you start meditating more and more and you start seeing the benefits, the mind will have a tendency to be interested to do it because it's just like when you were a child, your parents had to remind you for many years brush your teeth, take a shower right? And that w- that went on for many, many years, Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, 11, right? It wasn't until you were maybe 10, 11, or 12, however old, that you started seeing the benefits in taking a shower and brushing your teeth. You were like, hmm, I kind of like it when I have that fresh taste in my mouth. I think I'm going to do that on my own. My mom doesn't have to remind me about that anymore. Or I kind of like it when I smell good and i kind of have more friends around you know when i when i smell good so i'm gonna start taking a shower on my own my parents don't have to ask me to do it anymore so it's the same thing that when you saw the benefits with showering and brushing your teeth you started doing it yourself and nobody really had to motivate you to do it the same thing is here as an adult you have to motivate yourself to meditate and then as you're doing it more you'll observe the benefits, and then you'll get to the point where you just can't even imagine going outside without having meditated or partaking in your day. Because just like you clean this body every day, you have to clean the mind every day. How can we walk around without a clean mind? So we need to be showering and brushing our teeth every day, of course, but we also need to be cleaning the mind every day too. So where you observe the complacency, you practice those seven factors of enlightenment, you practice right effort, and you just pull up the boots and you start doing it. And then more and more, you start accumulating the benefits and you see the results and you can't even imagine going a day without meditating after you see the results and how beneficial it is. Thanks, teacher.
2: no more questions for
1: now. Okay. So thinking of meditation, hey, whoever asked that question about complacency, here you are, you're in a class, you're about to meditate. So there you go. You're applying right effort. So that's a a step in the right direction. In this path to enlightenment, it's these steps, these little baby steps every day, every moment, every week, you know, you're taking these little steps towards the ultimate goal. So let's go ahead and meditate together, which this is a great time where we come together to motivate encourage and support each other in our practice i'll just give you a little bit of guidance here because i've already taught a four-part series in this group learning program this group learning program is seven months long and at the beginning i teach a four-part series about how to actually do meditation. And then in this part of the program, we're just kind of alternating. So I'll just kind of remind you of the things I've already talked a little bit about in terms of how to meditate. And then if this is your first time joining us, then you'll get to hear some of those guidance that will kind of help you because the way that I teach you to meditate may be different than what you've learned before. And that's a really good thing. If what I was teaching you is exactly what you already know, then you have no use for me. I'm not beneficial For you as a teacher. But if the way that I teach you how to meditate and the way that I teach you other things as part of this path is unique and something you haven't learned before, that's actually really good because if you know your mind is unenlightened, that means things in your practice are going to need to change. So here, if I'm sharing something with you that's different than what you've learned before, you don't believe what I say you learn it you reflect on it and you practice and see the truth for yourself so when i share this guidance with you about how to meditate if it's different than what you've experienced before do it this way for a period of time and you'll see the truth for yourself that it benefits you and that it improves the condition of the mind so the first thing to do is get the physical body in position because the body is the employee the mind is the boss and we need to go through the employee to get to the boss And if the body is in a real painful position, it's not gonna wanna take us to go see the boss. Or if it's really luxurious, it's not gonna wanna take us to go see the boss, which is the mind. So we'd like to put the body in a comfortable position, not painful and not luxurious, in the middle. So have the lower body resting comfortably either on a chair or on the floor. If you're on the floor, usually you put some pillows or cushions under your rear to get that up in the air. Cross your legs lightly, not real tight because that'll inhibit the circulation and you'll start feeling pain in the joints. So if you feel any pain at all during meditation, you should shift the body and make it comfortable. Not painful, not luxurious, but comfortable. So either sitting on the floor or sitting in a chair, get the lower body comfortable. The hands and arms should be resting comfortably in the lap. The Buddha put his right hand on top of his left with his thumbs together. And then he put that in his lap. But if that's not comfortable for you for any reason, you can put your palms on your thighs, palms on the knees. You can put your arms on the armrest of the chair, whatever is comfortable for you. By the time you set up the lower body and the hands and arms, they should be completely relaxed. It shouldn't have any tension. There shouldn't be any muscles engaged in the lower body or the hands and arms. The upper body is different, though. The upper body, you would like the spine to be nice and erect. By keeping the spine erect, this keeps the mind attentive and alert during the meditation. Because remember, the body is the employee and the mind is the boss. So we need to keep the employee attentive and alert with this erectness in the upper body, which then they're going to take us to go see the boss so that we can train the mind. So with the lower body, hands and arms comfortable and relaxed, the upper body nice and erect, not too stiff and not real slack, but erect, then just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. This is where you'd like to just settle the breath, just a nice, natural breath coming in the nose and out the nose, breathing in, in, out. The guidance that I give about your breath is probably not going to match to what your actual breathing is, and that's okay. Your goal isn't to match the guidance that I'm sharing. This guidance is here just to help you, to help you along. So wherever you get to the next inhale, take a nice breath, breathing in through the nose. Nice, natural breath. And then whenever you get to the next exhale, a nice Gradual exhale, out through the nose, breathing in, in, out, breathing in. To do some chanting just to kind of ease us into meditation and then afterwards I'll come back with some more guidance. You can sit here and just breathe in through the nose and out through the nose or if you know these chants you're welcome to join along and chant together. <clears throat>
3: sa va kha to maha ki va So, but I know him Hato some as a putasa Nap more her ARA TO SAMA SAMPUTASA ITI BISO MAHGWA ARA HANG we charanang some moon, Saka to Roka we to a no sati satava Okay,
1: you should be breathing in through the nose, in out through the nose. should be a nice, gradual, steady, consistent, natural breath. Breathing in. Experiencing the full breath. Breathing out through the nose. Experiencing the full breath. Gradually coming out of the nose. Breathing in and out. Start fixating the mind on the breath, the sound of the breath, or the sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. The mind can be peaceful when it resides in the present moment on the breath. Breathing in and out. Breathing in. In out. With the mind, focus on the breath. Whenever you observe that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Don't try to observe the thought. Don't label the thought. Don't try to figure out where it came from. Just wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. in out. Breathing in and out. When the mind moves off the breath, you haven't done anything wrong. No need to feel guilty or shameful. You're not bad at meditation. This is just what the unenlightened mind does. It doesn't want to be trained. It's not interested in being in the present moment. So wherever you notice that it's moved off the breath, you just cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. You're not training to eliminate the thoughts. As long as you're alive, you're going to have thoughts. You're training the mind to have awareness or mindfulness. To be aware. Is it on the breath or off the breath? And then you're training the mind to have concentration. Focused on a single object, the breath and you're training the mind to easily let go of anything that it's longing for so that when the mind moves off the breath you train the mind to more easily let that go cut it off and come back to the breath the present moment breathing in In, out. Breathing in. and out. I'm going to be quiet now. Let you do this work. So that the mind doesn't even hold on to the sound of this voice. You have nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time to focus on the breath. Breathing in. in, out.
3: Hara Hara um, Samma. hip-hop hey, Nap more Arahato ma samuto vichacharanan sammono sakha all
1: right, you guys can make your way out of meditation. Just gradually kind of ease out. So the Buddha described breathing mindfulness meditation as being the very best thing that we could actually do to improve our gamma or the results of our decisions. By training the mind through breathing mindfulness meditation, we're developing and cultivating mindfulness, developing and cultivating concentration, and we're working to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. These right here are just enormously beneficial for the mind. So This is a practice that you can be doing two or three times a day, and it's going to accumulate into more and more improvements. But of course, you need lots of other wisdom of the Buddhist teachings in order to fully progress towards this enlightened mental state where it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But you just learn that little by little, bit by bit, little by little. And you can use these books. You can use these classes. The videos, podcasts, personal guidance, all these different ways to gradually learn that content and build up your life practice where all of this just becomes first nature. So, I would like to turn things over to you guys for any questions that you have on the meditation or your practice or any aspect of the Buddhist teachings that you would like to discuss. The way that you ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like.
2: Well, is it wise to make sure that uh, the conditions for practicing meditation sessions is relaxing for the body or one can challenge the mind by difficult uh, conditions like uh, very cold weather or very hot weather?
1: Yeah. What I suggest for people is give yourself at least four to eight weeks to really get established with a consistent meditation practice. And and maybe you take a little bit longer depending on what your life is like, but build up a consistent meditation practice where you're seeing at least once a day and upwards of twice a day minimum that you're observing that you have a tendency to choose to meditate. You're going to do that and you're building up your practice. And as it's getting closer and closer to 30 minutes or more, That's where you would like to start challenging the mind, right? When you're just meditating five, 10 minutes, 15 minutes a session, that's not the time to introduce any more challenges because the mind is already challenged. It's already having challenges just to get to 30 minutes. So you would like to get to two or three sessions a day, 30 minutes or more. And then when you see you're doing that consistently, Over a consistent period of time, that's where you can start introducing some challenges to the mind, where you start introducing some impermanence so that the mind doesn't get fixed or attached or start craving, desiring certain things about your meditation practice to be permanent. So if you observe that you're meditating in the same room all the time or with the same lighting or with the same amount of background noise or what have you, these are variables that you can adjust in order to introduce some impermanence to the mind so that it doesn't get used to holding on to any one particular thing. So you might go to a certain temple. You might go to a park. You might go to a friend's house. You might just move from your bedroom to your living room in your house. And that is a change, right? Because it's different lighting. It's different sitting situation. It's different environment. And then maybe it takes a week or two for the mind to get content and peaceful, having a steady, consistent meditation practice in that environment. Then, as you would like to introduce some other variables, you can, like different lighting or different sounds, different locations. You may have your primary place. Like for me, I have the primary place where I meditate in in my room pretty much is where I do the vast majority of meditation. But I go out and do meditation in other places. I'll meditate in the living room sometimes. If I'm out at a park, I might meditate at a park. If I'm at different temples, I'll meditate at different temples. I'll do walking meditation in different places, but I'm always doing at least one or two sessions a day in the bedroom because that's my consistent kind of go-to place. But then, you know, when you travel, you know, you're in a hotel room for five days or 10 days or whatever when you're traveling and you're still able to meditate if you base your practice on just the body, the mind, and the breath. These three things, body, mind, and breath. By meditating with just the body, mind, and breath where you don't need music or candles or beads or any particular thing like this, then no matter where you are at any time, you can meditate. It doesn't matter where. If you're in the remote mountains of Chiang Mai, Thailand, and uh, you're you know two or three days from civilization, you can still meditate because you just need the body, the mind, and the breath. So you can introduce this impermanence and it really helps the mind. What you'll notice is if you get used to meditating like in your bedroom, for example, and then you do that for a period of time and then you go out and start meditating at other places, when you come back to your bedroom, your meditation will actually be a lot more deep. It'll be a lot more beneficial because you've introduced some of this impermanence by moving the mind around into different settings.
2: Someone sent me a video about some monks a a meditating on the top of maybe the Himalaya, where it's really, really very cold. Do you think this is, do you consider this as a wise decision?
1: Sure. You you know, I'm not going to uh, make a decision about somebody else's practice. You know, we should always focus on our own practice, not trying to judge what other people are doing to determine if it's wise enough for them. But you can look at other people's practice and decide maybe you would like to incorporate that. So in that situation, you know, there, there's a change in altitude, there's a change in temperature, there's a change of environment. So all that impermanence is really helpful for the mind. So you can do those kind of things. It doesn't mean you absolutely have to meditate in a cold environment, but where you can change up some variables in your meditation practice, change them up the things that are going to be consistent is the body, the mind, and the breath. Always body, mind, breath. But all these other variables, you can kind of shift them around. Once you get your practice stabilized to two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more, that's where you can start introducing some impermanence and start challenging the mind a bit with these different situations. And it'll also probably be more interesting and more fun for you too, rather than just meditating in the same place all the time. You know, we talk about this universal truth of impermanence and how the mind does not like impermanence, right? The unrelated mind doesn't like change. It doesn't like impermanence. What it really wants is it wants permanence. But can you really imagine a world where everything was permanent? Like if you come to Thailand, it looks exactly like Egypt. Or you go to Singapore, it looks exactly like Egypt. Or you go to America, it looks exactly like Egypt. Wouldn't that be the most boring world ever? So while the mind craves this permanence and it wants this permanence, it's really ignorant. It's really unknowing of true reality because if it truly got permanence, it would be utterly bored with that. So the same thing with meditation is if you meditated in the same exact place all the time, the mind would kind of like get complacent. And it would probably, you know, not be interested in doing that. So by changing up the variables a bit and kind of challenging the mind, this keeps the mind active and attentive. And it kind of gives it something to work towards kind of like a professional athlete, right? Like a coach for a professional athlete. They don't just have their athletes do the same mundane workout every single day for 10 years, right? That's not what good coaches do. Good coaches will mix up the variables in the workout in order to challenge the athlete and really help them to grow. So that's the same thing as like you're making all the decisions about your own life practice here with the mind and you've got to be that coach that realizes like, hey, I've been meditating here for two weeks or a month or whatever and I'm feeling kind of a little bit bored, a little bit complacent, let me kind of mix things up here and kind of challenge the mind. Let me go to a park. Let me go to a meditation center. Let me go to a retreat. Let me go to a temple. Let me go into the mountains. Let me go to a waterfall and meditate next to a waterfall. There's all these different things that you can do that challenge the mind and make it more interesting for you. And then you'll notice that it actually really helps your practice because you're introducing this impermanence to it.
2: Well, uh, since we talked about fears last class, it seems that some people experience uh, uh, fears from certain ethnic groups or certain people from uh, certain religions. Can you share your thoughts about these fears and how to eliminate this?
1: Yeah, so we talked on Sunday about fear and about how that's caused by craving, desire, attachment, the mind craving permanence, it's wanting permanence. And when it doesn't get what it wants in certain situations, it's going to arise this fear. It's always going to arise discontentedness when there's craving, desire, attachment. There's going to be some type of discontentedness, whether it's anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all of these discontent feelings and others, whenever there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, it's going to arise those feelings. So as part of this path, we're working to eliminate craving, desire, attachment so that the mind no longer gets shaken up and experiences discontentedness, but it can be permanently peaceful, calm, serene and content with joy. Well, we talked about conditioning of the mind with fears. We talked about how, you know, you can experience something like a car accident, and then when you get in a car accident and you feel the pain of the car accident, the mind can be conditioned to think, every time I get in this car, I'm going to experience this pain. And now there's a version where the mind is pushing away the car ride and it doesn't want to ride in a car anymore because it's scared and it's fearful. Or we might have other experiences where maybe we went up on a ladder and we fell off the ladder. And now we're utterly scared of heights and anytime there's a situation that needs to go up on a ladder or even going up in an escalator or an elevator or on a higher level of floor the mind has this aversion where it's pushing it away and it thinks that's going to solve the problem and it thinks that's what's going to create this contentedness in the mind by i'm just going to avoid this situation and therefore i won't experience that fear but the fear is the symptom the problem is the craving-desire attachment. So we've got to address the craving-desire attachment by putting the mind in situations that it can experience going into a car and going around and seeing that, hey, every time I get in the car, it's not going to end in pain and going to the hospital and all those problems. Every time I get on a ladder, it's not going to end in falling off. And the mind can let go of clinging to these conditioning in these memories that we experience because the mind craving permanence, it's wanting to hold on. And it thinks that permanently, every time I get in this car, I'm going to get in an accident. Or every time I get on this ladder, I'm going to get in an accident. This harmful thing's going to happen. Well, the same thing happens with things like racism or homophobia or xenophobia or any of these phobias, you know, I don't know the the technical name for it, but like the phobia about spiders or snakes or whatever, these are all coming from the same exact problem, craving, desire, attachment. So maybe somebody has experienced a situation in life. Maybe when they were growing up, they were, let's just say in Thailand, let's just say a Thai person grew up and there was a Westerner who has white skin who beat them up in school when they were eight years old. And now, this child has this impression in the mind, this conditioning that thinks all people with white skin and blonde hair are angry, resentful, they're going to beat them up, they're going to take advantage of them, you know, steal things from them. And now their mind is conditioned to hate people with white skin and blonde hair. And now, because of that experience at 8 years old or 12 years old or 16 years old or whatever it is, or maybe their family or their parents, maybe they didn't even get beat up. Maybe just their family had experiences in life. And they told this child, all growing up, all white people with blonde hair are horrible. Don't be around them. They're crooks. They're vicious people. They're uneducated. They're stupid. Whatever it is, right? Like they might have had their mind conditioned by experiences from these very impressionable adults growing up to hate this ethnic group of people with white skin and blonde hair. And now this person has this fear of people with white skin and blonde hair. So whenever they're around the person or they see that or they see it on TV, they now have this hatred that arises in the mind and there's this fear. And now they try to push it away and they don't want to be around anybody with white skin and blonde hair because they're craving permanence to be around the people of their same race or their same ethnic group. This is the same thing of why there's people who are of Caucasian background who hate people that are African-American or who have black skin. There's people that are of African-American descent, have darker skin, who hate people that have white skin or Caucasian background. There's people of one ethnic group that hate other ethnic groups and this is because the mind has been conditioned by impressionable people around us or by certain experiences that we might have had ourselves, where now the mind is thinking that every single person of that ethnic group is bad and now i'm going to have this racism towards that person or someone might disagree with a relationship of same gender relationship of two women or two men being together. And someone might disagree with that. And now they're craving permanence. And they think that everyone in the world who's a woman should have a male partner. And every man should have a woman partner. And now they become homophobic and they're afraid because now they're craving permanence. They want everybody to be like them, to have a opposite gender relationship. And now they're trying to force and control others because of their own craving, desire, attachment. They're putting that on other people and thinking that the whole world has to be exactly the same because their mind's craving permanence. And this is where now this hatred and this anger arises in the mind. People are trying to push each other away and now there's fighting and hostility and aggression where what this all comes back to is the same pollutions of mind It's craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. Because of ignorance, because of the lack of true reality, and having the wisdom of knowing true reality, and understanding something like as simple as the universal truth of impermanence, because of this lack of wisdom, that not all women are going to be interested in being with a man. not all men are going to be interested in being with a woman and not all people of white skin are going to be interested in being with a partner that has white skin and not everyone who has darker color skin is going to be interested in being with someone with a darker color and not everyone who has dark color skin is a bad person and not everyone who has white skin or tan skin or what have you is a bad person but the mind craving this permanence Because of this ignorance, this unknowing of true reality, it lacks the wisdom to understand the universal truth of impermanence. So now there's this craving to only associate with people of your same ethnic group or your same race or your same choices in terms of your sexual orientation. And people are craving that permanence and wanting to be with someone of the same type. So there's that ignorance, then there's this craving. And then when it doesn't get that, when it comes across someone who's the same gender relationship, or they see people with opposite gender relationships, or you just see somebody of the opposite gender, when there's this craving that they want everybody to be of a certain race, now there's this anger that comes into the mind, this hostility, this frustration, and now it motivates unskillful conduct. Like what we've seen in the past where there's been wars fought where people were trying to completely eliminate a particular race or a particular ethnic group in the world. Because of someone's ignorance, unknowing of true reality, they had this craving for every person to be of the same race. And then because of this anger and this hostility, it motivated this unskillful conduct where now we're going to try to kill off this ethnic group so that we can now have this permanence where everybody can be of the same ethnic group. And this is how wars, this is how racism, this is how hatred, xenophobia, homophobia, and all these other conflicts within the human population occurs, is because of craving, anger, and ignorance, this unknowing of true reality. And if we're truly interested to eliminate racism and homophobia and all this stuff that exists in the world, then we need to focus on our own practice eliminating craving, anger, and ignorance for our own practice and then as each individual chooses to do that for themselves and they choose to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance in their own mind, then that person will choose to no longer be racist or that person will choose to no longer be homophobic or that person will choose to no longer be xenophobic and things like this. But we can't force others to do that. It's impossible. To force someone to eliminate ignorance or unknowing of true reality. It's impossible to force someone to eliminate craving, anger, or any of these other defilements in the mind. We can't force people to do it. They have to actively decide that they're no longer interested in holding on to this hatred, to this anger, to these racist thoughts, to this homophobic thoughts to wanting everybody to be the same way. And when someone chooses for themselves to move forward and train the mind in this way, one by one, each person choosing on their own will see that hatred and anger and all these racism, homophobia, xenophobia, and all these other things will gradually be diminished and eliminated from society. That is happening and has been happening for many, many decades, but it's not going to happen at the snap of a finger because the mind needs gradual training and people need to gradually choose to move towards the light instead of staying in this darkness. This darkness is where racism, homophobia, xenophobia, and all the others are. That's the darkness. Walking towards the light is choosing to no longer have this craving, anger and ignorance and allow the mind to dwell in this darkness where the mind is craving to only be around one particular race and thinking that people of other backgrounds are all bad or wrong or doing something wrong. The mind is unawakened. It doesn't have this wisdom of something like the universal truth of impermanence. So once somebody chooses to walk towards the light and they gradually learn these teachings, We'll see these things in our society start to gradually diminish, but we can't force other people to do it They have to choose to do it on their own
2: So are you saying that, that all these kinds of racism, all these wars, all of this discontentness can be totally eliminated uh, Or avoided by eliminating this kind of craving?
1: Yes, the entire world could become heaven on earth if All the individuals in the world chose to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance. If everybody in the world practiced these teachings, we wouldn't see any wars. We wouldn't see global wars. What we would see is we would see countries coming together, talking, and having discussions because they would know that death and fighting in wars, this is just destruction. It doesn't lead to any beneficial results. There's never been a war yet. That has led to beneficial results. There's always going to be unwholesome results. There's just going to be killing and murdering and raping and pillaging and stealing and people trying to control each other and try to force each other to do things. If people eliminated craving, anger, and ignorance across the world, we would see heaven on earth be created because people would be practicing things like loving kindness, compassion, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity. And they would have the skills and abilities that they need to come together either on a global level of leaders in a country or on an individual level within families and communities and neighborhoods to be able to talk about their different viewpoints, their different opinions, and they would be able to express those in a polite, kind, friendly, and respectful way. And while they may not agree 100%, if everybody had eliminated this craving, anger, and ignorance, there wouldn't be this anger and hostility and this desire to fight and be hostile and aggressive with each other. If people's minds were awakened to these teachings, they would realize that anger and hostility and All this discontentedness that we experience is all optional and it can be eliminated from the mind and it doesn't lead to any beneficial results. Arguing and yelling and hollering and having war, this actually doesn't solve the problem because the problem is craving anger and ignorance. A war can't solve that. If one country has a craving to do one thing and another country has a craving to do another thing. And now one country is trying to force the other country to do something. This is due to their craving. And then there's this anger that motivates this unskillful conduct. And it's all because of ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. So if people didn't have craving to dominate another country or they didn't have craving to control another country, there would be no use for war because everyone would just allow each other to live peacefully in harmony. But because the human mind in the world, people don't understand these teachings and they've really degraded over many, many years, then we're at a point in humanity where the vast majority of the world has massive amounts of craving, anger and ignorance. And this is why we see continuous problems, not just war, but murders and rapes and global conflict, orphans. We see poverty, we see crimes, we see stealing, You know, we see all kinds of problems in the world and we can't fix that for other people. The only way that the world gets fixed and improved is when each individual person in the world chooses to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance. There's nothing that we can do as a group to force other people to change their behavior and change their decisions. Each person has to choose to do the work to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance on their own. And having done so, then there's going to be peacefulness and harmony within society.
2: So the teachings are not for only the benefit of the mind condition. These teachings are also what the entire world needs, right? Right.
1: In my viewpoint, yes, that if the entire world learned and practiced these teachings, then we wouldn't see all of these problems. But, you know, what I know and what I understand versus what other people choose to do is completely different. So I don't have a craving to force other people to learn and practice these teachings. I have an interest to help people, but I'm only interested in helping those people who are interested to learn because I know I can't force another person to learn. So people who choose to come to class, who choose to pick up this book, who choose to listen to the podcast, who choose to reach out for help, I am here to provide guidance to everyone who's interested, every single person in the world, openly and freely, everyone can come and learn. But when or if somebody chooses to do that is totally up to them. And there's nothing that I can do to try to force somebody to do that. And even if I could, I still wouldn't force somebody to try to learn because enlightenment doesn't work that way you can't force somebody to attain enlightenment you can't force someone to eliminate craving anger and ignorance they have to choose to do it on their own but having done so as more and more individuals choose to do that then we'll see more and more harmony within society
2: thanks teacher we have a question from a graduate on zoom he writes how to practice right concentration teacher
1: So right concentration is singleness of mind. This is where the mind focuses on one single thing at a time. The Buddha said, when you're walking, you're walking. When you're talking, you're talking. When you're sitting, you're sitting. He even said, when you're defecating, you're defecating. When you're urinating, you're urinating. So when you're practicing right concentration, you'd like to train the mind at all times in your day to do just one thing at a time. So when you're defecating, you don't sit on the toilet and... You know, use your phone at the same time. That's trying to do two things at one time, which the mind can't do anyway. It's actually flipping really fast. It's looking at the phone and then it's trying to defecate. It's looking at the phone, it's trying to defecate. And this is why people will have a long time sitting on the toilet because the mind's not focused on just one thing. This is also why people drop their phone in the toilet when they end up being on the toilet and they're experiencing the unwholesome results of their unwholesome decisions because of the craving to be on the phone, because of the ignorance or unknowing of true reality to practice singleness of mind and right concentration. They're experiencing these unwholesome results of dropping their phone in their toilet. And that's their kama. That's the cause and effect. That's the unwholesome result so you need to get to the point where you just do one thing at a time and you train the mind to do just one thing at a time at all times you don't watch tv talk on the phone and eat food at the same time because the mind can't do this it's just going to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing to thing and it's going to create a very overactive mind so if you're eating you just sit and eat or if you're watching tv you just watch tv or if somebody calls you on the phone you just talk on the phone and spend time on that phone call. And this is practicing singleness of mind all throughout your day. And then what you're doing to support that is you're doing breathing mindfulness meditation. Breathing mindfulness meditation is to train the mind to have right concentration and focus only on one thing, which is the breath. So now when the mind goes off the breath, you cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath. You cut it off and come back to the breath. More and more, you're more easily training the mind to let go of things and be content and peaceful and joyful with just focusing on one thing like the breath. So then in daily life, now it becomes easier for you to just focus on one thing at a time because you're doing that in meditation on a consistent, ongoing basis. And this mind is getting better and better at focusing on just one thing, which is the breath. Now in daily life, it becomes more and more content and peaceful with joy focusing on just one thing, just talking on the phone and being content with that, or just watching TV and being content, or just sitting alone and doing nothing and being content with that, or just defecating and being content with that. What you'll notice is by doing just one thing at a time, you'll be able to bring your full amount of wisdom to that particular thing and make wise decisions. Where if you were eating, watching TV, and talking on the phone, You're not making good decisions on the phone with whoever you're talking to, and it's going to damage your relationship, and you're probably going to have to clean that up later, and you're not really getting the benefit of the TV program, and you're not really getting the benefit of eating the food either, so you're having to clean all this stuff up. The mind thinks that it's actually benefiting itself by trying to do three things at one time, and it thinks it's accomplishing more. But this is the ignorance. This is the unknowing of true reality. This is the confusion, this is the delusion that it thinks by trying to do these multiple things that it's doing more, but it doesn't associate that argument you have a week from now with the person on the phone was because they're angry that you weren't focusing on the conversation. And now you're having to spend all this time cleaning up this relationship, where if you would have just spent the five or 10 minutes on the phone, had the conversation and been done with it you would have been making wise wholesome decisions to have a full conversation and be able to fully handle the conversation that you need so when you handle one thing at a time and you focus with singleness of mind you can bring full wisdom of the buddhist teachings to make wise choices in how you speak and what you do in your relationship so that you can then fully gain the benefits of having made nothing but wholesome decisions. So that's what the whole path to enlightenment is. That whole eightfold path is helping you to see how to conduct yourself in terms of your wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline so that you can train this mind to function more optimally like that beautiful instrument. That if the string's too loose, not beautiful. String too tight, not beautiful. But tuned right in the middle, Now it plays beautiful music. The mind is the same way, that when you tune this mind with wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline, now it's going to perform optimally. And now each thing that you handle, you're always functioning through generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, which produces the wholesome results, and you're just doing one wholesome thing after another wholesome thing after another wholesome thing, and everything you do, all the decisions you make are all based in wholesome decisions and wise decisions. So you're never having to go backwards and clean things up. This is why the Buddha, having taught for 45 years, was so successful. And he was able to accomplish so much during his life because he was able to just move forward, move forward, move forward, move forward, and be able to accomplish so many things. And In 45 years, you would think if you just did one thing at a time that you wouldn't be accomplishing as much. But you are because that one thing is being done with wisdom and it always is resulting in wholesome outcomes. There's never anything to go back and clean up. Whereas if we're trying to do too many things, not focusing with singleness of mind, Then we're always having to go backwards and clean things up because we're not bringing our full wisdom and our full attention to one particular task. So, right concentration is all about practicing meditation to develop singleness of mind, focused on the breath, and then carry that into your daily life through just doing one thing at a time.
2: Thanks, teacher. That's all for today.
1: All right. Well, thank you guys for joining for today's class. This Sunday in our group learning program, we're going to be in chapter 18, which is titled God's Creative Action You Have Free Will. This is a chapter devoted to helping you understand this being of God. And if you choose to have a relationship with God, how to do that while still getting to liberation and getting to enlightenment. And if you choose not to have a relationship with God, helping you to understand how to do that too, because that's important in order to be able to get to liberation. The path to enlightenment and whether you attain enlightenment or not is not dependent on God. God isn't the one who's going to determine whether you attain enlightenment or not. It's your own individual choices. But just like Gautama Buddha taught about different gods during his lifetime, we need to be sure that we understand this topic as well in order to get to liberation. So if you're interested in not having a relationship with God, there's certain things that you need to know about how to do that so that you can still get to liberation of mind. And then if you are going to choose to have a relation with God, there are certain things you need to understand there in order to get to liberation of mind too. Because depending on what you've been taught about this being of God, if you're walking around with fear or you're walking around with ignorance or delusion or confusion, this unknowing of true reality about this being God, then it's going to be very difficult for you to get to liberation of mind. So on Sunday, we'll be devoting our time and attention in class to studying that chapter and you can read it before or after or maybe before and after if you'd like and then next wednesday we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together as a group so you're welcome to join for that so i'll see you either sunday or wednesday maybe both of those days and in the meantime have a very lovely rest of your day we'll see you next time Sawadika.
0: thank you for listening to this podcast